Welcome to another episode of Off the Wire. Uh, this is Matt Wireman, and we have the pleasure and honor of Dr. Dr. Nicholas Wolterstorff uh, with us today. And uh, I am—I was telling him earlier that I feel extremely humbled and honored to be able to have him on uh, our podcast today. And uh, one of the things that I was struck by, in, in, in case you're wondering, Dr. Wolterstorff um, just published a memoir of his life uh, called In This World of Wonders, Memoir of a Life in Learning, and uh, felt like there was a lot of affinity, uh, I was telling him earlier as well, that, of, of a love for gardening, a love for ceramics, a love for music, those kind of things. So, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do on, on this podcast is to take theology and philosophy in this case, but philosophical theology, if you will, and be able to make it into a very practical and show how it is practical in its very nature in what it's doing. As you look at the stuff of the world and then assimilating that as a person in the world, how do we faithfully uh, live uh, a life that honors God in that? And so, um, you know, one of the one of the things that I noticed very quickly, uh, Dr. Wolterstorff, was that because my wife asked me, she, she, she's like, okay, who, who are you interviewing today? And I told her, she goes, well, why, why are you interviewing him? Or, or, or I said to her, well, he's, he's fascinating. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by his life and by where he's gone from Edgerton to Bigelow to Grand Rapids to uh, New Haven to London and then back to, well, actually down to Charlottesville and then back to Grand Rapids. And uh, I, told him, I, I told her this morning that uh, one of the things that's captivated me about your story particularly is that it, it, in back of all of your philosophical writings in, in, in informed by this memoir is your, your curiosity, your inquisitiveness, your desire to know about the world itself. And then that curiosity and that inquisitiveness of the world, you know, you're not, you're not just thinking about philosophy uh, behind a book, but that you are working with your hands, you are having conversations with people at your church, and that curiosity itself opened the doors for a lot of opportunities in your life. In fact, you, you said in your, your memoir that, that it opened up almost all of your opportunities to be able to say, okay, I want to write about liturgical elements. Well, that was an open door that came to you. And then, um, but, but those, what's fascinating too is that those details of your life are more vivid to you even than the details of your dissertation. Uh, in, in writing, uh, a lot of times people think, oh, that, that's, that's just a talking head, you know, and in a lot of ways, what, what you grasp in your memoir and in your life and in your work is that you are really passionate about living life and, and enjoying aesthetics, enjoying the stuff of the earth. And so I, I'd love for you to reflect a little bit on, uh, you know, briefly, because if people want to want to want to learn more i would encourage them to to get your memoir it's it's fascinating and you'll fall in love with him like i have but you you talk about um this this religion who where where you say i want to be what you call it the challenge of being particular without being parochial and you say the reader will discover that my way of being religious is very different from the aggressive, aggrieved, and adversarial way that is presently prominent in the American scene. So I'd love for you to reflect on how your upbringing and your love for craft and craftsmanship and, and the things of life have, have led you down the path of philosophy as opposed to woodworking, for example. Yeah, right. Well, um, various things have indeed led me down the path of philosophy rather than woodworking, but 
but the woodworking in my background, my father, uh, the woodworking that I used to do has had an influence. Um, so I, so the religious context in which I grew up, a Dutch reformed immigrant community in the extreme Southwest Minnesota, the prairies of Minnesota. Uh, a lot of people when they write about their religious background are write about how oppressive it was. I reviewed a book by Jewish people, something like that. She talks about how oppressive she, her background was or how oppressive she perceived it as being. But mine was not that. Um, my father especially taught me a love for, for, for wood and for working with wood. And we played games and had uh, got together every Sunday with relatives and so forth. So it was, uh, Matt, it was, um, it was a form of religion in which love of, love of your neighbors, love of your friends, and love of the things of the earth was a, was a very important part. It didn't have this rough, didn't have this rough edged adversarial quality to it. You find that that, that has lived me, that has supported me, that has continued throughout life. It, it, do, do you find that what's missing, I mean, what is missing in the religious conversation of the day? I mean, you, you do talk about an adversarial tone in the, in the world and yeah. people just turn on the news. So what is it, what element of that is, is missing? You talk about conversations, you know, after church on Sundays in your community. You talk about uh, arguing with your cousins and with your aunts and your uncles about various issues and yet hugging them at the end of that conversation. And yet you don't see that in our not only uh, political jargon of the day, but also in our religious interactions with, with people of not, not even other religions, but even intradenominationally, you know? So what, what do you think is the missing element of, of why, why we're having such a hard time liking each other? Yeah, let me begin with, with the point you made. Um, indeed. So, so I talked about the love of gardening, love of woodworking and so forth. That was part of my childhood, love of art, love of music. But it was also a form of conversation, of discourse. Um, after church, we lived in the village. My aunts and uncles, cousins all lived on farms. So everybody got together after morning church at our house and, in retrospect, drank, probably ate far too many sweets. But they worked hard during the week, so drank a lot of coffee. And then these amazing discussions, which everybody could join. Children as soon as they wanted to, women along with men and all ages. And everything under the sun was a top potential topic for discussion, naturally what the minister had said, but also in those days, Hubert Humphrey and Harold Stassen and why the fish weren't biting and what the dams of the Missouri would do and so forth. <laughs> Sometimes it got very intense. It really did. But to my amazement, I made nothing of it at the time, but looking back to my amazement, intense as it got, when it was time to go, they'd all get up, hug each other and off they'd go. <laughs> so, so I didn't put it in these terms then, but now it's clear to me that what I was learning, what, what they had learned and what I was learning is to separate person from argument, that you can have an intense discussion with somebody, but that, doesn't, that shouldn't mean and ought not to mean that you're hostile to the person. Mm. And that was amazing, the way they could separate. In fact, in fact, part of their love of each other was to have these intense discussions. Hmm. 
and that's missing from today, as, as you observe. And we mustn't overdo it. That no doubt there are little pockets in which the same thing happens that I experience. But on the national stage, it's, it's aggressive and hostile. So something, something has been seriously lost. To, to disagree now is to, disagreement now often comes along with um, demeaning your opponent, speaking, speaking ill of, your, of the other party. So we've lost an important, are losing an important, an indispensable part of human culture. I mean, is that, is that in part because we are identifying ourselves with a subgroup perhaps? And then if I'm, if I am challenging that uh, presupposition, therefore I'm challenging you as a, as a subgroup, would that, would that be fair? Or? I, I, I think that's it. And as you observe the, uh, the hostilities, the, Anger, not just between Christians and non-Christians, but within within Christian groups as well. So it's some, um, yeah, it's we think of ourselves as part of as part members of a party, as you suggest, and uh, and we're defending the party. Yeah, and almost even as you reflect on um, your disagreements on on ethics and and even in the latter part of the book, you're saying, well, I have a different way of working through. I think you know, how or was might be a skew in this. Like there was no sense of like, oh, he's just ridiculous. I mean, how, how do you do the work of saying, okay, this is an idea as opposed to, I don't like Stanley Hauerwas, for example. You know, how, how do you do that? Because I would presume that you would hug him around the neck and, and even your interaction, um, you know, at, at the, at the dinner table after, um, you know, where, where the, the one lady you talk about, which says, I think you were ridiculous. And you're like, you know, I, 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 I turned around, I gave her a hug and I said, you are my sister in Christ, but I cannot talk to you anymore. Like, how do you, how do you personally work through that to be able to, cause you're in the, the heat of a lot of philosophical discussions and how do you hug somebody around the neck? I mean, other than saying, well, it's an idea. Well, if in a lot of ways that person is taking on that idea as no, I'm a Duoweirdian, or I'm a Kyperian, or I'm, you know, all these things, like, I identify as this. Like, how do you personally work through that? Um, you're right, Stanley Howard Wass and I are dear friends. Uh, we've got firm <laughs> disagreements on facts of things, um, but we love each other, um, work together, and so forth. The answer to your question, Matt, um, so I've thought about that. I, I think <laughs> I think I've been graced with the fruit of the spirit in that regard. That is to say, I don't think of myself as working hard to to like people, to get on with them, and so forth. Uh, I don't go through psychological steps. It's the fruit of the spirit in me is the best I can say. Yeah, no, that, that I mean, yeah, that that's helpful. So, I mean, what do you think, as as we've alluded to? within Christendom itself, uh, I mean, what are, what are some of the greatest challenges that we have as a church? Uh, as, you know, whether it be not liking each other across denominational lines, but, but I, I do see that there seems to be a softening of some of those denominational lines. I mean, I, mean, I myself um, am, am seeing a lot more ecumenical discussions where, and it not just being, let's find the lowest common denominator type ecumenical discussion, but a I, I have this conviction and you have that conviction, but we both have Christ in common. So there seems to be some traction happening, but 
um, within within Christendom. But how or what would you say would be some of the greatest challenges to our Western Western Christianity? Yeah, I think you're right that there is that uh, reshuffling of of memberships of denominations. <laughs> the reshuffling sometimes results in like-minded people getting together with like-minded people, of course, where yeah. previously they had a... Yeah. I've just been reading a book by um, um, Wes Granberg Michelson, um, Future Faith, mm. a very interesting book. And, and Wes says that three of the most important challenges facing the church today are, are first... We've got to recognize that today the majority of Christians are no longer European or European origin. Mm -hmm. The majority of Christianity is now in in the South, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and so forth. And that the shaping of Christian thought and practice that we in the West have accomplished and transported to the rest of the world, uh, we've now got to be open to to substantial changes there. Um, another thing he points to is that we've got to accomplish racial reconciliation within the church, not just put ourselves into white people's churches, uh, Hispanic people's churches, black people's churches, and so forth, but have to learn to actually live out the gospel. There is in Christ neither male nor woman, neither black nor white, and so forth. Um, so we've got to be open to, uh, there's, there's a third one he's got, which i um, got it right here. Yeah, well, I, I mentioned that, that um, no longer can we see that, we've got to learn to see that, he puts it like this, we've got to learn to see the church through non-Western eyes. Uh, we've seen it consistently through Western eyes. So, so I think what so it seems to me, you and I have to be open to these to these changes which are taking place almost under our nose, and and and, and not be not be worried about it. Uh, this does not the fact that the church is no longer mainly Western does not mean that the church is going into decline. Quite. Quite the contrary, um, the mem- uh, total membership of the Christian church is increasing rather than de- decreasing, in spite of the fact that in Europe and North America it's decreasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather long answer to your question. No, that's that's great because that's that's kind of the essence of what I'm wanting to hear you kind of ruminate on on these things because that's where I think as 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 we talk through it, because you know I spent some time uh, in Argentina uh, for a couple years as a missionary. And I found that a lot of the expressions there uh, took on uh, North American influences. Like we were singing, Lord, I lift your name on high in, in Spanish, uh, which is not to say it's good or bad. It just is. But I do wonder, like, how do we kind of recover some of that um, communal spirit of Latin America, for example, without it? You know, because so much of the Christian expression now uh, came in through conquistadores and, and came in through, you know, Pentecostal missionaries and, you know, white, uh, North American Pentecostal missionaries, um, not, you know, from South Korea or any, so, so there's a lot of just specifically in, in Latin America, because that's, 
been my experience, but then I have friends that have been missionaries in China and there's, there seems to be a lot of, uh, to understand Christianity, at least through those lenses has already been informed from centuries past, uh, by a, a wide understanding. So how do, I mean, what, what do we do? Do we need to just get back and start to try to look at some of the more primitive expressions before missionaries came? I mean, how, how do we go from here to, to help move in that direction? It's going to be a slow process, but uh, in my own congregation here in Grand Rapids, Church of the Servant, uh, two things are happening, which, which aren't don't make huge or anything like that, but I think they're helping. Uh, about three years ago, a new hymnal was composed jointly by the Reformed Church of America and the Christian Reformed Church. And a striking feature of this new hymnal is that a lot of the music in it is global music. I, you know, I haven't bothered to count it up, but my guess is a quarter of the things, whereas previously we'd have North American 19th century music, there's still some of that, but a lot of global music, which is really beautiful. We don't, we have to learn to sing it. It doesn't, it doesn't come naturally. It tends to be more heavily rhythmic than, (laughs) but it's wonderful. And so. Are you singing it in English or or are you singing it in the. Well, the first line is always in the, uh, in the, in the native country. Okay. So we've got quite a few people who know Spanish, some who know French. That goes well, but when it's Korean, uh, they, <laughs> they, they don't use the Korean symbols, but uh, yeah, make, yeah. Uh, you know, so, so you can sort of sound it out. So the, the first line, the first stanza is always in the, in, the, uh, in the foreign country, and then we switch to English. What's also happened is that um, um, we've had a refugee program for a long time. And the refugees began asking mm. for their own service simultaneous with, with the, with the a big service, let's say. So now on a given Sunday, there's the, we haven't found the right words for it, but one is called basic English for people who are still learning English, and the other is called standard English. I don't like those terms, but anyway. So the basic English service now has maybe 150 people in it from, from all over. Quite a few churches have um, services for refugees, but my understanding is they tend to be just monocultural, just um, mm. Ethiopians or just um, yeah. Nepalese. Yeah. Here it's, it's a, an utterly fantastic mixture of Nepal and Indonesia and Korea and South America. It's, <laughs> it's fabulous. So they have their own service, their own songs, dress in far more colorful ways than Westerners do. Um, then we have a coffee service where, where we all join together and once, once, uh, once a month um, a meal together. So mm-hmm. we're slowly, oh, and once a month we have a common service um, in which they participate along with the rest of us. So it's a, it's a beginning. It's, it's, it's not yeah. stunning, I wouldn't say, but, but it's, 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 it's a, rich, a rich beginning. Is the goal eventually to have a perpetual joint service together or, or is that, is that like, what, what is the thinking with that? We're going to leave that up to them. Okay. What, what, whatever they prefer. Well, so well, at, at, as, I, have, but I think even, as long as refugees are coming in, whose English is not very steady yet, I, I think they're going to want the service in which, there's a simpler version of scripture that they use. Um, the preacher tries to use simpler English <laughs> and so forth. Uh-huh. There, I, 
think the new refugees are going to prefer that for some time. Are the, are the liturgies the same? Like Almost. the order of service? Almost. Do you, yep. do you find that in your, in your um, work on liturgy that there is a, like, that's the... Oh, and let me just say, so there are two pastors, and oh. the pastors during the week uh, talk with each other about uh, the scriptural passage and connection and uh, how okay. to interpret and so forth. So they're not just... And, and they exchange pulpits every now and then. So it's not just two. We don't want it to be just two independent congregations. Yes. No, that's all. Okay. That's helpful. Are they, are they, are they, are y'all following the um, uh, revised common lectionary on the, with what passages or do, do you, or do, does the yeah, church? Yeah, common lectionary. No. Okay. Okay. And, and, and with, do you find that, that liturgy, like liturgy helps transcend some of those cultural particularities to where it's like, okay, we're going to do three of these songs. And then this, I mean, how do you, how, how have you in your work with liturgy, how have you seen that relate to multiculturalism within the, the body of Christ? So I, that's a really good question. So, so it's my impression that, it, that the liturgy involves doing it together. Of course, you're not just doing it simultaneous, simultaneously. <laughs> but independently but you're doing it together and mm-hmm. and that that has a mysterious mm. effect on people i think that mm. it's not it's us mm. and they may not have liked each other very they somebody may have annoyed somebody on the way to church or whatever but and now it's us and always the, in both the big service and the refugee service we have communion every sunday and that's another Joining of hands, so joining together. Mm. So I, I think that before the coffee service, there's then we have all together celebrated a common liturgy is is a really important uh, mm. way of coming together and understanding. And those, and, and I guess some of the so the skeletal structure of the liturgy is there for both services, but some of the flesh is a little different. So they they're going to sing songs that may be of a of a, like a so-called simpler quality that it's not going to be a real uh, deep doctrinaire type type singing, but there's going to, you know, they're going to be able to choose what songs they want to do and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And the okay. prayers are different. Um, so forth. Yeah. Okay. Now that's really helpful because one of the things that, that I'm trying to do, so I'm, I'm in the, uh, the Baptist tradition and we're trying to uh, practice uh, a, a explicitly liturgical service, and we follow, I follow the lectionary for for the sermons. We take the Lord's Supper each week, um, and we have a call you know call to worship. We have a confession of sin. We have a benediction at the end, and then we sing the doxology. And uh, I found that to a person that has been raised in other traditions, that that seems to it's almost like a good opera that has a it sounds familiar they can't put their finger on why does this feel familiar to me and it turns out they were raised methodist or presbyterian or anglican and so that so they resonate with and so even within christianity there there seems to be that could be a good place to start because if we can't take care of folks within our own household you know how can we welcome other people into it right right yeah so one of the things uh one of the questions i had um it seems that much of the problems in the West, and because I want to ask you about postmodernity and and how 
you know, we've talked about the identity and, and wedding of my idea or my subgroup or my, my subcategory. And then there seems to be with all of the technological advantages, which are, which are fantastic. And yet at the same time, uh, unwittingly, they've kind of dr- driven wedges between us as individuals because you don't have the hugs at the end of the conversation, you know. And, and I think that that's a really formative element to being human is that you feel the warmth of someone after you've just had a heated discussion, right? Yeah. And we're, we're missing a lot of that. And I mean, while you and I can talk hundreds of miles away from each other, and this is wonderful, there's still a missing element to that. And, and it seems that within post-modernity, as, as it relates to thinking, um, independent of community, that's where you start to see more fractures in, in our world as people are trying to push against each other, but they never realize that, hey, we're, we're in this thing together, you know? <laughs> so I'd like to hear... Um, as a, we, we communicate with each other, but as you observe, it's at a distance, so there's no chance of hugging each other. Yeah, you know, there, there's actually another, uh, another podcast called uh, People Who Hate Me, and, and uh, people who hate me. And so what it is, is that there, there's a guy who, who writes, he's a journalist, and he will contact the people who denigrate him or say he's foolish or an idiot, and he'll call him on the phone, and the podcast is him interacting with this person that hates him. And, and then he humanizes the conversation, you know? And so I, I'd love for you to think um, yeah. that as, as it relates to, it seems that much of our problems in the West is the inability to separate the person from the argument, as we've already talked about. People are afraid of pulling triggers or being accused of microaggressions. What is right about this? Like, what, what, what is good about that? And yet, what's problematic about it? Because there's something, there's got to be some vestige of, of good within that desire to not, have a microaggression. We'll talk about, uh, you know, feminism here in a moment, because I think you have some great things to say in your own genesis of where you're at with, with, with understanding the, fe- you know, feminism itself uh, through, obviously, with, with your interaction with your wife, Claire. Um, but I would love to, for you to help us think through, like, as, as opposed to just paying it black or white, like, oh, that's bad that we worry about microaggressions and triggers there actually could be something good in that. Can, can you reflect a little bit on that as it relates to the postmodernism and, and the identities and those kind of things as it relates to being made in the image of God and those, those kind of things? So I suppose what's good in it is that, we, that we're taking each other seriously when one person uh, <laughs> offends another and that and that you're not treating the other person as just an abstract argument, but, but a person. So it's, so it's, a, delicate, mm. it's a delicate balance. Mm-hmm. When I was teaching, I would discover almost always, when I was teaching beginning philosophy, almost always it happened. I'd encourage discussion in the room. Mm. And almost always it would happen that a woman, always a woman, would say something. Mm. A fellow would disagree with her sometimes sort of sharply, but sometimes not particularly sharply. And she would be in tears. Hmm. It always went that way. A woman, a fellow, the woman being in tears. Hmm. I don't recall it's ever going differently. I would have to talk to the first person afterwards and say, you know, he he wasn't attacking you. Hmm. Somehow you'll learn. 
somehow to get on, you've got to be able to separate the discussion, the argument from the person. Mm. But sometime I'd have to talk to the fellow and say, hey, look, you were <laughs> way too aggressive. Um, you were demeaning her. Um, you, can you have to learn to disagree without being uh, offensive. Mm. So, so for me, it was, it was <laughs> part of the essential strategy of running a philosophy classroom was getting people to take each other seriously without being angry. So you don't dismiss the other person. You take them seriously, mm. what, what, what the person said. But you don't allow it to, you don't take it, you don't take it as a slight when somebody says, well, I have a different view on the matter. Mm. Um, I have a former student up in Concordia, Fargo Moorhead, very Lutheran, and he says that he finds it extremely difficult to get discussions in his philosophy classroom. Because in that particular Lutheran subculture, it just is the case that disagreement means mm. hostility. Mm. Um, that, was, that was never true for me. I, I, as I say, there were always one or two, but it was, that was never the entire culture. Mm. Either when I was teaching at Calvin or when I was teaching at Yale. Huh. So, so how do, how, it sounds so, so like, you what's that? Yeah. What you had in mind? Well, yeah, and, and I'd like to drill down a little bit more just as it relates to, you know, <clears throat> um, what we do with words. Because, I mean, sticks and stones do break bones, but so do words, right? They can, they actually do something when we say something to somebody, like, you're an idiot. Uh, we can say, well, that, that's just words, but you're actually doing something with that. Um, I'd love for you to reflect on on that a little bit more with, okay, now taking it out of the, out of, so in the classroom discussion, how do you take these words in theology and philosophy and, 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 and actually make it do something? Because I think in a lot of ways, we have a lot of seminaries who, that are teaching people to talk about doctrine, but doctrine divorced from, hey, they just need to, they just need to understand that this is right and they're wrong. Um, is it as simple as going to get coffee afterwards? I mean, how does theology and philosophy then go from the esoteric conversation to the actual getting your hands and feet dirty and actually doing something again? We talk about liturgy, which is wonderful. Yet, how, how do we, how do we, how, how have you sought to make the philosophy practical? Is it merely just opening your eyes and looking around that it's all around you? Or, or what do you think? So I think it goes two ways. Um... I've come to think, as I say in the memoir that you mentioned, I've come to think, came to think some years back, that the core of what God wants for God's children is, is shalom. Um, shalom is an Old Testament Hebrew, well, it's a Hebrew word used in the Old Testament. In the older translations, it was translated as peace. Much too weak, I think. I think the Hebrew, word, Hebrew Old Testament word shalom means flourishing. What God wants for God's creatures is flourishing, not just getting to heaven, but flourishing, flourishing until full of years mm -hmm. in this world. Not to deny mm -hmm. the age to come, but flourishing until full of years in this world. And hence God is against injustice and violence and mm -hmm. so forth. So that's, once I, once I began to see that, but that's the core of the Christian gospel. And there are doctrines that surround that and so forth. But, but the core is shalom. 
then also, um, again, my philosophical career at uh, Harvard in love with metaphysics, I wrote a, a dissertation on the metaphysics of Alfred North Whitehead. Uh, so metaphysics, abstract metaphysics, was my first love, and in a way it still is. But what's happened to, but what happened to me is things, I put it like this, things fell on my doorstep that I felt I could not ignore, that I had to think about philosophically and theologically. Hmm. The first of those, and the most memorable of those I wrote about, my college, where I was teaching Calvin College, sent me to a conference in South Africa in 1975. Conference was not about, a, apartheid was still in full force, but the conference was not about apartheid. It was about higher education in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. But the Dutch, a lot of Dutchmen were there, and they were very knowledgeable about apartheid and very angry about apartheid. So they'd sneak questions about apartheid into the discussion session after every lecture. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Vandermeer, what you said about uh, education in, um, in, in, in the hinterlands is very interesting, but that brings to mind um, a point that I'd like to make about apartheid. <laughs> <laughs> Finding, finding the, the yeah. things, until finally the Afrikaners were just fed up to hear with it. <laughs> so then we had, so finally they consented to an evening session which was devoted entirely to apartheid. Uh, and that's where the so-called blacks and colors from South Africa began to speak up. To speak up and to describe their daily existence, the macro apartheid and all the little indignities. Uh, and they issued a call for justice. The response of the Afrikaners who were defending apartheid, not all of them defended apartheid, the response of the Afrikaners took me completely aback. Mm. They said, but justice is not the issue. Mm. Benevolence is the issue. We are a benevolent people. Huh. We, we, we think we have 11 or so different nationalities here in South Africa. We think it would be good if they would all flourish shalom, in their own way. Mm -hmm. own basket weaving and own cooking and so forth. But to do that, you've got to pull them apart. You can't just have them next mm -hmm. to each other. So mm -hmm. apartheid. Uh, here's what struck me. I was hearing benevolence, self-perceived benevolence, mm -hmm. used as an instrument of oppression. Mm -hmm. And I left the conference thinking, yes, I love metaphysics. Mm -hmm. But God confronted me with a call in and through the voices of these suffering people. Mm. Nick Waltersdorf, you've got to speak up for them. Mm. You can no longer avoid the topic of justice. Mm. So that was the first case in which a call to think philosophically about some part of human existence mm. just confronted me. Mm. I suppose some people would have said too bad, but uh, there was something inside me which said, no, I can't just walk away from this. So the, so as you've noticed, my theology and philosophy are, I mean, there's still some metaphysics there, but um, are intimately woven with life, with justice, with art, with liturgy and so forth. Yeah. And in almost every case that's because something came to me and said, mm. some aspect of life came to me and said, uh, Nick, you've got to, it's your responsibility to not just walk away from this and say I'm concerned with other things, mm -hmm. but 
cast some light on justice, on art, on liturgy, mm. education, whatever. Yeah. That's, that's really beautiful. And considering um, going back also to the conversation that you would have between a male uh, student and a female student and pragmatism would say, yeah, just separate them, have a, have a classroom for women, have a classroom for men, separate, but equal. Um, and, 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 and in a lot of ways it, it, it drills down to just say, well, you know, like I'm like my two kids are arguing my tendency is just, okay, you go to your room, you go to your room. And then that's sol- that doesn't solve the issue. Um, because at root is a justice issue, but justice is painful. Somebody's got to give, somebody's got to, and some, somebody, somebody's got to get a thicker skin too. Right? So there's got to be an interplay in that this person who is my quote unquote adversary or enemy is actually God's good to me to grow as a person. Exactly. Beautiful. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and in a lot of ways, like trying to push against apartheid, is to say, no, no, it's just like what our civil rights movement here in the United States. It's not separate but equal because what we're, what we're, we're losing an inherent quality to what it means that God is multifaceted. He's the creator of all men and all women. Uh, and that we, we have to learn uh, by acquiescing in some cases and, 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 and other places to be able to say, you know what, I, I need to get a backbone here. And I need to engage with this argument because I just said something really dumb. And just owning that as opposed to running away from it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think that's, uh, that's really beautiful in thinking through, you know, argumentation is not something we need to run away from. Um, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But it's something we have to learn to do respectfully. Mm. I'd, I'd love for you to double click on or, or, or kind of elaborate a little bit more because your work now uh, is is still in that vein of justice injustice issues as you've been working uh, yeah. with in Honduras and um, and, and some of the the uh, injustices against the poor in that area, and you mentioned that one of the fundamental issues in Honduras particularly is a distrust of the people to the powers that be or to the authorities. And I'd love for you to reflect a little bit on your work as it relates to justice and injustice and in the flourishing of the human being. It's not just a matter of, okay, you give him $50 and that fixes the problem. It's there's something, there's something else that you're after as it relates to, to justice, injustice. And I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, both my, my main experiences, I suppose were, well, three of them, South Africa, the Palestinians, and then Honduras, Honduras most recent. And in all those cases, what, what justice does is not just bind up the wounds, because mm. if you bind up the wounds, then the injustice continues. Mm. What, what a concern with justice does is to get at the source of it. Mm. And that in, invariably creates anger, uh, because there's somebody benefiting from the system, obviously, and they don't want it to change and so forth. And, mm. You call them out for it. When you say that it's what's what's being done is is wrong, that is morally wrong. Mm. This <laughs> this stirs up anger. But that's what justice work differs from mercy. Uh, well, let me put it like this: a sign that you're working for justice, probably not for mercy, is that you're stirring up hostility. Uh, mm. If you're just uh, bringing in food, digging wells, for the most part, that's not going to get you into any trouble. But mm. when you 
start getting the oppressors to stop oppression, you do get into trouble. So Honduras in recent years has been very instructive for me, as you suggest, um, to see how this, I think it's a wonderful organization, Association for a More Just Society is working there to, and it's, it's clearly a justice organization. Um, I mean, they do some welfare work on the side and some development work, but basically it's a justice organization what? doing their best to get the government to do what the government is supposed to do, namely secure justice in Honduras. And, and that's that's what I was going to ask you. Like, what what is what does that look like? What 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 is what is justice? What's the justice that that you're after in in those kind of conversations? Is it just you you're supposed to do your job, Mr. President? You're supposed to do your job, Mr. Officer? Or or is there like what's what's at bottom of of that? So here's an example of what ASJ has done. They discovered that the education laws were pretty good. Uh, I don't know, 250, let's just say 250 days of education required for each student per year. But they discovered that the implementation of the law was horrible. Hmm. So that some students, let's say that 250 days, some students got were getting no more than 150 days of education in a year. Now, some teachers never appeared in their classroom. They hired somebody else at a lower wage to teach their class. Uh, the system was, was rife with, with corruption. So ASJ began by publicizing what was happening. Individual citizens in Honduras would have known what was happening with their kid, but they wouldn't have known that this was widespread. Publicized what was happening and then brought public pressure to bear, went in front of television cameras and so forth and talked to the Minister of Education and uh, mm. to the President. Until mm. this year, my understanding is that finally, Almost all kids in Honduras get 250 days of education. Mm. Took about 10 years. Mm. So it was a process of educating the public and then holding the government responsible. Not doing a sort of end run around government and starting your own schools, but mm. getting the government to run the government schools the way they should. Mm. Um, it was risky. Um, the heads of ASJ have round-the-clock bodyguards. Uh, every now and then they're shot at. Um, but they're courageous and imaginative. <laughs> I admire it enormous, enormously. And, and all they're doing is they're just asking or telling or holding accountable the uh, powers that be. <laughs> they're, not, they're just saying, okay, you, you were uh, voted into this. You need to uh, make good on this claim. I can't see you, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, you can't see me? Okay. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, as it, basically all they're trying to do is saying, what are, you've got to just make good on your claims. You, you are, you know, in office, you said that you are, you were an elected official, and that seems to be so much of the pushback. You mentioned that there was a pastor, Machado, I think, that was killed, and all, all yep. they're trying to do is push and hold people accountable. Is it as simple as people just, uh, is it as simple as people are being, are, are selfish and self-centered? I mean, is it, is it that simple that uh, I want money and, and I don't want to give it away to people that I'm supposed to be giving it to or helping or, or what, what is it on the part of those that are being so, so their, analysis is, their analysis is that it's a combination of factors. Um, it is selfishness. Um, 
I mean, if I'm a teacher and I can hire somebody to teach my class at less money than I'm getting, mm. <laughs> I'm, mm. um, I'm making out there. Yeah. Um, sure. What they also say is that an endemic feature of, of um, Honduran society is, is that people don't trust each other. Mm. So uh, if, if somebody's child is murdered, the parents don't dare to tell the police. Mm. And the, if the police do hear about it, they don't dare to do anything about it. They don't dare to tell the prosecutor because they fear that if the word gets out that they have heard about it and they know who did it, that the, mm. that the crook will come after them. Oh. So, so nobody trusts anybody. And so they just, they live with, with this criminality. Mm. And for me and you, at least where I live, there are probably parts in the U.S. and maybe in Chicago, for example, where people also don't trust each other in, in the same sort of way. But where I live in Grand Rapids, if my house is burglarized, I call the police. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't ask, should I call the police? I call the police. So, so a pervasive absence of trust is another feature of Honduran society. So corruption and lack of trust, I suppose those two are, um, I would say that their analysis is that those two are at the, plus, plus the fact that people in political power like to hang on to political power. Mm. Hmm. Well, you, you mentioned um, like mercy ministries or welfare type things that there's a lot of Christians that are digging wells and feeding folks, which is great. Um, but they're not pushing against some of the societal structures that are perpetuating the problem. Um, I, I'd like to, to shift gears a bit as it relates to how Christians engage the culture. How, how do we as Christians engage the culture? Here, let's... So, you, uh, you mean here in the U.S.? Uh... Yeah, yeah. So um, as, as it relates to, um, you know, you can, you can have a, a Benedict option, right? And, and, you, and you go away and you say, hey, we're going to start our, we're going to take our ball and go to this new basketball court we just constructed. But what you're challenging Christians and the church to do is to engage in a thoughtful way in what's already there. This, this Kyperian worldview of, Hey, we want to be the yeast working itself through the dough. We want to be the salt working itself in the society. So how, I mean, what, what are ways that we can practically do that as Christians? Obviously you see this like international justice mission is, is a group that's seeking justice for those in, in human slavery and human trafficking I mean, is it, is it some of those things that are common to the human condition in our in, in appealing to the, the image of God type thing? Um, yeah, so I've, I've spent, um, you know, I've spent my life doing that. Um, Christian philosophers, so I taught at Calvin for 30 years help form the Society of Christian Philosophers. So I've very much interacted with other, with fellow Christian philosophers. But I've also kept alive my engagement with, my interactions with those who are not Christian. I've very much tried to do both of those. So I've been president of the big philosophical society, American Philosophical mm -hmm. Society, and also the Society of Christian Philosophers. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So I think the answer to that question is, <laughs> the answer to that question is that there is no general answer. Mm. You, you, you have to adopt, I don't like the word tactics here. You have to speak differently to different people on different topics. Mm -hmm. To a Jewish person, when I'm talking about Shalom, uh, we understand each other immediately. Mm. To uh, to uh, to a secular utilitarian, uh, he, he would tend to say, "What?" Um, <laughs> so you've got so so I put it to students often like this: that when you're talking to another person, Christian but certainly non-Christian, you've got to you've got to look for the place where you can put mm. your pry bar, where you can where you can get them to say, oh, <laughs> yes, I haven't thought of that. But now that you bring it to my attention, I guess you're right about that. Um, some, some argument, some example, some story, mm -hmm. depends. And it might take you a long time before you find the point where you mm -hmm. can get the other person to say, ah, oh, yeah. I, um, and of course, it goes the other way, too. You have to be open to the other person persuading mm -hmm. you you were on the wrong track. So <laughs> That's the hard part, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's very much a matter of uh, detail, I guess I want to, of, of particularity. That's the word I want. It's yeah. a matter of particularity. There's not some big general advice. Yep. Here's how you talk to non-Christians. Yep. Here's five on steps. On which kind of non-Christian on what kind of topic. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think and you, the key word you said at the beginning was listening. Yes. Right? Listening to the person, and then that is motivated by a, a genuine love for the person. And so much in apologetics, uh, specifically, has has looked at people as people to win or projects to win over, like or or maybe even patting myself on the back and saying, "Hey, I got this, I got this one uh, taken care of." You know. Um, so I think I think in a lot of ways, um, <laughs> the Augustinian approach of of love leading, like charity being the the preeminent uh, virtue that we're after in our interactions with one another. Right. So if you're just talking at them, yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a form of demeaning them. Mm. Mm. In what way? How, how do you, how do you think? Well, they're human beings who have their own concerns and loves and so forth. And the, and the, the appropriate response to that is to love them, not just talk at them and try to get them to change, but to, Promote their shalom. Hmm. But, so, but some people, some people might say, "Well, I am loving it. I'm telling the truth." <laughs> yeah. So how, how, how does that? How does that work? There's more, to, <laughs> there's more to love than just telling the truth. Hmm. Well, it, I have. I mean, let me give an example of that. I, I'll conceal the names. <laughs> um, a friend of mine, a woman friend of mine, was teaching at Oxford. Got a position at Oxford. And one of the senior profs said to me, said to her, so-and-so, you know, you were the sixth on my list. <laughs> now that's telling the truth. Mm. You were the sixth on my list of, of candidates for this oh, position. Oh, I didn't want you here. I didn't want you here. I wanted, I wanted one of those other five. Mm. Now he didn't have to say this to her. Mm. He was telling you it was the truth. Mm. But that's, Telling the truth like that was not an act of love. Hmm. And hmm. often telling the truth is simply 
not an act of love, it's an act of spite or whatever. Mm. That's really powerful because in a lot of ways as Christians, we can say the truth is the most loving thing I can do. Well, before that, understanding what Jesus said and that, you know, treat others or, or pursue the flourishing to you, to, to use the, the, the nomenclature that, that you use in, in your book that pursue the flourishing of someone else um, as you would want them to pursue the flourishing of your own life. Right. Like pursue life in there. Like, so would I want to be told I'm number six, <laughs> you know, like starting with that very simple, like, how does it make you feel when somebody says this to you and, and, and talks to you as though you are, are, are adult, you know? Yeah. Well, to, to there are lots of situations in which saying exactly what you think, telling the truth is a very unloving thing to do. Mm. Button your lip. He mm. didn't have to say to her, you were the sex on my six down on my list of preferred candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I know that. I think that, I think that would go a long way with people. Cause I think in a, in a lot of ways as people engage in, the the task, uh, lack of a better term, the task of apologetics, they get stymied or they or they get flustered or they get fearful that they're not going to know all the answers. And yep. really, what you're challenging us to do is you don't have to know the answers, uh, you know, in a in a beforehand. You you're going to walk with them as a human being. Exactly. Yeah. Well, because and, and one of the other things you said just just a moment ago is that. And being open to the fact that maybe I'm not seeing things as clearly as I need to see them. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and there, there, there are Christians who consciously or subconsciously think that there's nothing to be learned from non-Christians. But, mm. Um, mm. but when you engage in a field like philosophy, you're in it together <laughs> and you learn from each other. And um, Yeah, it's, all, it's almost like just go do something with 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 somebody who doesn't believe like you and you'll find that you have a lot to learn, go put up some drywall, you know, go, go paint a wall, go try to do some pottery and you'll realize that you're going to be asking, Hey, how do you, how do you make that crease in that pot? <laughs> like you're going to learn a lot, but you've got to put yourself in a position of the learner. And, and you speak a lot about the Augustinian faith seeking understanding yeah. uh, as, as it relates to the Christian life. Uh, broadly speaking, and and could you re- reflect on what what does that phrase? I mean, there's been a lot written about it, but what does that mean in the practice of being a Christian? The faith-seeking understanding, as opposed to you know, I'm going to build. I, I believe because it seemed like the most viable option, rationally speaking. So when I was a student, um, I went to Calvin College. When I was a student at Calvin College, majored in philosophy. And the motto that our teachers used over and over for working as a Christian scholar was faith seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. They, and, and that's what they practiced and that's what they taught. So they didn't engage in apologetics, mm-hmm. trying to find art, art, whether they were against, they just didn't bother with it. Um, trying to find arguments to prop up the faith. Mm-hmm. The idea was rather, if you're a person of faith, you have a certain orientation on the world and in the world, mm. different from the orientation of a secular utilitarian and, and naturalist and so forth. So the calling of us, we were told, the calling of us as Christian philosophers, scholars, was to look at the world, study the world, reflect philosophically, 
from within that particular orientation, which values human beings in a way that a naturalist does not value. Basically tried to do, I've done very little by way of giving arguments for the truth of Christianity. Mm -hmm. There has, in fact, been a, a rich development of such arguments over the past um, 30 years. Old arguments restated with increased sophistication and new arguments. Yeah. I've read them, but I'm much more interested in how does art look to mm -hmm. me as a Christian? How does justice and the call for justice look to me as a Christian? Um, mm. How does liturgy look? Mm. That's basically what I've done in my writing. I'm looking at the world through the eyes of faith from my Christian orientation, um, faith-seeking understanding, and then talking with others who have different understandings and see if we can work out the how does that uh, avoid fragment fragmentation if if it's I, I I'm looking at this as a Christian and that person is looking at it as as a secular humanist like how how yeah. do we avoid the 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 ditch as it were of postmodernism saying you can't talk to me from your particular view so that seems to me just mistaken, but, but when he hears it, especially sort of goes like this, uh, I and my fellows have suffered. Uh, you haven't suffered in the same way, so you cannot possibly understand us. Mm -hmm. Now there's some truth to that. Um, suffering does, different kinds of suffering do have their own character. I, I don't dispute that. But seldom is it the case that, you, that we can't say anything to each other. So, mm. it, so that's, that's just a way of building up walls. Mm. And I do my best to combat it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... so. so well, well, I doing my best to acknowledging the suffering, yeah. the victimization, which leads them to this position. Of, that's right. That's I can't right. even you. Yeah. No, that's great. So... so you you ask a provocative question, uh, why why do we need arguments? And 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 you and your colleagues were like, yeah, I don't really think we need. I'm not sure. You you don't really answer the question in the memoir itself, so it's left. But but as you know, if you if you're familiar with your writings and those kind of things, then you know what the answer is. But I mean, do we not need arguments at all? Yeah, I don't think that we need arguments for. Um I don't think Christians need arguments for the truth of Christianity to be entitled to be Christians. Mm. So I, I, I don't think that arguments play the function of, of necessary props. I think what the arguments for God, what God, for God's existence do do is they, they illuminate a structure, a certain structure in reality, a certain deep structure in reality. Mm. And that's worth noticing. It's not necessary to notice that, mm. but I think, there, there's value in students of philosophy and theology, uh, studying them and seeing, ah, oh, this is, there's a, there is now, for example, in the last 30 years, a so-called fine-tuning argument for God's existence. If the constants of the universe, physical constants of the universe had been ever so slightly different, life would have been impossible and, and human life would perforce have been impossible. Mm. 
So that's so when I get spelled out what that comes to and what these constants are and so forth. Um, I th I think what has to be said is that yes, that illuminates a, a really interesting and important part of reality. Mm. But you didn't have to know this argument in order to be entitled to be a Christian. Yeah, that gets into the arguments are, aren't necessary, but nonetheless they have some use. Yeah, they they, they yeah they help help kind of bolster you in, in moments yeah. where you're feeling feeling a little down in the dump, so to speak. Yeah, then, you can, then you can take up a book of arguments and uh, <laughs> on a Saturday afternoon. And, uh, yeah. Well, one of the things that um, I'd love to um, hear more from you on is, um, you know, one of the, one of the things I have, I've grown to love about you is that the philosophy that you're talking about is very, earthy, very fleshy, you know, like while you say, yeah, I'm, I, I love metaphysics. That's my first love analytic philosophy. There is, there is, you can't get around the fact that you are uh, informed by your environment and that, that, that is something to embrace and that's something to celebrate in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways in, you know, these philosoph philosophical discussions can, can almost feel un- appended to the world in which that we, we find ourselves. And, and one of those things is with the problem of pain and suffering. And, and yeah. you've written at length about, about that because a lot of times we have taken the, the problem of pain and suffering and we've made it into another argument for God's existence. Yeah. And one of the things that I have loved, <laughs> not only in your memoir, but even in your, your book that you wrote, uh, Lament for a Son, and, and when you lost your son, Eric, uh, it's just visceral and it is true. And, and, and in, in so many ways, you didn't have to give a syllogistic argument. You said, Hey, I'm a human being. I feel this. In fact, I want to read something from your memoir that was, um, that was, I, I read it and I had to stop reading for a second. Uh, he says, how you say this, how was I to live with this strange and painful intruder grief? I was well aware that a common way of dealing with grief in our society, perhaps the most common way is to try to disown one's grief. Note the language we use, putting it behind you, getting over it, getting on with things, getting on with your life. This is the language of disowning. The aim is to get to the point where one doesn't think of mentioning it when, when asked to identify the significant events in one's life. But I think I remember hearing that you lost a six-year-old son. Oh yes, that's true. I had forgotten. That is disowned grief. I felt intuitively that to disown my grief would be to live a lie. It would be to declare implicitly that Eric's death was not an evil or that my love of him was not a good, but his death was an evil, a great evil. And my love for him was a good, a great good. My grief spoke the truth. It was an existential shout of no to the evil of Eric's death and an existential shout of yes to the good of my love for him. Could you talk, because, because then you talk about, assimilating or incorporating a faith that incorporated Eric's death and my grief in together, as opposed to like, okay, the time of mourning is over, but it seems that it's very much a scar that you're not trying to cover up, but this is part of who I am. This is part of my story. And I'm not going to try to have an answer that's going to satisfy anyone. Yeah. The, the, the morning, the morning is never over or in my view, the morning should never be over because mm -hmm. I sometimes put it like this. If, if, if he was worth loving when alive, mm. then surely he's worth mourning when dead. Mm. And not for six weeks or something like that. 
Mm. So the morning, the grief changes character. It becomes less insistent. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, after Eric's death, I would be reminded of his death, oh, 50 times a day by this, by that, and so forth, a chain of events. Now it still happens every day. Something, I notice something, that leads me to another thought, that leads me to another thought, and then lo and behold, there's, there's Eric again. And, and it's unpredictable um, what, what chain of thought will do this. Um, and when, when this happens, I feel the grief again, not as intensely as at the beginning, but the grief. And the way I put it there is I think the way it should be put, uh, the grief is a shout of mm-hmm. no to the evil of early death and to the good of, of mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. So when people come to me and talk about it, I, I say, um, don't try to get over it. Mm-hmm. Learn to live with it. Mm-hmm. It'll gradually become easier to live with. Never mm-hmm. totally easy. But don't try to get over it. Mm. Why, why is that? To get over it is, is a way of putting it behind you. And, and, that, and that just seems to me is, is an existential way of saying his death was not so bad mm. or my love was not so good. So let's, mm. <laughs> let's go. So, so the old ancient Stoics, Roman Stoics, did not grieve over the death of children. And they didn't, they didn't or they tried not to. Because they thought it was wrong to be attached to somebody, to be attached to somebody in such a way that if that person died, you were cast in grief. So they just pulled in their mm. tentacles. They tried not to love. Mm. That seems to me so pagan, so non-Christian, so non-human even. Uh, but that was their strategy to um, pull in pull in their bets, uh, not attach themselves to children. One of them is reported as saying upon hearing about the death of his son, I always knew that he was immortal. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked why he wasn't grieving. And the, and the father says, oh, I always knew that he was mortal. Mm-hmm. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> spicy response. What, what is it in people? As if he was a marvel, a marvel that got lost or something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, and that's, that's to deny what it means to be human, right? Human is a person yeah. in community. Like you're yeah. not a detached not person. Isolated individual. Yeah. What, what is it in, in people and then even Christians in general, Christians specifically where we want to go so quickly to Romans eight twenty eight. Hey, this is going to work out for your good. On the other side of this, there's victory or, you know, why, why is there this unease? with with that grief and mourning so there's there's a strand in christianity don't know why there it is which indeed says plus well, things like this he's better off mm. don't grieve he's better off mm. to which my response is maybe so but i'm not better off yeah um yeah. there's a strand in christianity which says you you shouldn't grieve i I vividly remember shortly after Eric's death, there was a Christian television program and a couple, middle-aged couple, were sitting there and their son had been killed. And the woman is crying and the man, husband, leans over and taps his wife's knee and says, now, now, Matilda, don't cry. Mm. 
Um, mm. When scripture, when the Psalms especially are filled with lament. So to me, it's a mystery how, how and why Christians who profess to live by scripture mm. nonetheless think that they should not grieve. Mm. How, do they, how do they read the Psalms of lament? What, what, what do they do with them? Or maybe they don't do anything with them. Mm. I, don't, I don't understand it. Well, in some ways, it seems like folks want to say that suffering is a means to a greater end, as opposed to the suffering itself is part of our our existence. I mean, that's that's the whole storyline of Scripture is that that there's that God suffers, you know, in some right. capacity. He loses His Son, His only right. begotten Son, um, you know, and it's almost like so. So for the person who is struggling let's listen to this podcast and they're you know I, I was abused uh i was um i suffered injustices to go back to what we were talking about earlier i've you know all these things that were done to me what 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 kind of counsel what, what would you tell them i would tell them to acknowledge the evil own own the suffering the the grief um don't try to put it behind you, act as if it wasn't real. While at the same time, see if you can move to the point where you can own it redemptively in some way, where, where some kind of good comes out of it. It may take a long time, um, may never happen, but, um, so I think now, I didn't have this thought at the time, but I think now that when I wrote Lament for a son. That was a way of owning my grief redemptively. That, that it wasn't just raw grief, but some some good came out of it. Um, so so this mysterious blend is what I think we should try to achieve. Owning it, I was abused, not to conceal it. It was wrong, but to come to the point, difficult, maybe never, bring some good coming out of it that can be you know all kinds of different different things being more open to the grief of others than you were before and so forth one of the things that's uh very poignant in reflecting on eric's death uh you wrote this um after oh, oh so let me let me go back a little bit faith involves cognition of some sort be it belief or something else, but faith at its core is not belief, but trust. After Eric's death, my trust in God became more wary, more cautious, more guarded, more qualified. I pray that God will protect the members of my family, but I, I had prayed that for Eric. I pray, um, I still trust God, but I no longer trust God to protect me and my family from harm and grief. Um, that, that hit me in the gut when I, when I read it. It's like, that, but 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 that's just being honest. <laughs> you know, somebody who's struggling with suffering. You lost someone that you loved for twenty five years. Yeah. You know, and and so there are people that are struggling with. Okay, hey, I I was I was abused as a child, or I was I was not given I was not given the opportunity to flourish. You know, in in my own life, like how does how do you work through that as it pertains to God? And so, so yes, the horizontal, like, okay, there's got to be something redemptive in, okay, 
I want to cherish the ones I love that I, as I have them right now, but then how it informs our, our, our quote unquote vertical relationship with God. Like, how do you help someone like you're angry with God? It should, is that, is that okay? I mean, and how, and in what way is it okay? What, what way is it okay to wrestle with God in, in that suffering? Absolutely, it's okay. Um, once again, the, the, the psalmist wrestles with God and expresses anger towards God. So I did my best to, so my relationship to God changed, but it's not been easy for me to, exp, uh, to put into words how it has changed. I don't think I felt anger. Mm. It was more hurt. And then mm. what, I can, what I described there, best I can do is a certain wariness, a certain caution. Mm. Um, at first, I was extremely cautious with our children mm. after Eric's death. They would, we lived near Lake Michigan, 20, 25 miles away. A week later, they wanted to go swimming in Lake Michigan. And I wanted to say, oh, please, no, no, please, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found myself, mm. in fact, wanting to say to them, stay in bed. Please stay in bed. I'll bring you your uh, lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and I got over that. But it was, a, it was a struggle for a while because, well, you see why it was a struggle. Um, yeah. Um, so a certain... I didn't lose faith in God, didn't lose trust, but the best I can say is, God, I do still trust you, but, but. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think there's something very therapeutic about that in, in just acknowledging this hurts as opposed to, okay, what's the lesson that God wants you? What, how? How yeah. ridiculous when you sit outside of your life, why does there have to be a lesson in this? Why can't it just be, this is horrible. This is horrible. You know, and, and in the midst of this, and, and even, even pushing back against, well, God wants to reveal himself, something about himself to me. It's, like, it's still that we, you don't see that in scripture that we're just means to an end, that God cherished no his creation. And so many of the theodicies, in, in effect, treat human beings as means to an end. Individual yeah. human beings as means to an end. And I couldn't stand that, no. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think... So when, I wrote, when I wrote Lament I, and uh, Memoir, I did my best never to say anything that I didn't really feel and believe. Mm -hmm. um, I quickly became aware of the fact, I knew it anyway, that in grief, there are all kinds of things that you're expected to say and think and feel. And I, <laughs> I didn't want any of that. So I tried to be as honest as I could. And it's raw at some points. Let me tell you about an experience that I had with it. I described it, described it in the memoir. So Calvin College has begun um, a bachelor's program in a nearby state prison, Handlin Prison whereby prisoners can get Calvin A.B. degrees. By and large, regular college courses are taught by Calvin professors who drive the 25 miles out to Ionia. So a colleague, a former colleague of mine who's, well, somebody who's teaching, younger person who's teaching philosophy at Calvin, Kevin Corcoran, uh, said that he'd been using my lament for a son in the class that he was teaching in Hamlin Prison. 
and mentioned that he knew me and that, in fact, I lived in Grand Rapids. So the prisoners asked, well, could you invite Professor Walterstorff to come and visit our class sometime? So Kevin mentioned that to me, and I said, of course. It was the most moving mm. teaching experience, if indeed you could call it teaching, mm. of my entire life. First, what was moving is they had copies of Lament. They lined up, had me sign them, and would say how honored they were that I had come to speak to them. I've never had students line up <laughs> before class and say how honored we are, Professor Aiken. Mm. So then I said a few words about how and why I wrote it, then opened it up to them. Mm. And for 10 minutes, I was completely baffled by what was going on. Mm. And then I, then, then I saw what was going on. They weren't treating the words in the book as my words about my grief. They were treating the words in the book as their words about their grief. Um, so they would read a passage and sort of explain it in that way, explain, mm -hmm. say what they had done to, to their best friend, to their wife, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was extraordinary. So, so as they left, it occurred to me to say that they had honored me by allowing my words to be the expression of their grief. Mm. They were extremely candid mm. and open with what they had done, far more candid than <laughs> 18 yeah. to 22 year old college students are. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I haven't murdered anybody, but still. Yeah. They were lifers. 17 of the 20 were in there for life. Mm. And that, that's so, that's such a, <laughs> it puts a fine point on, on the whole discussion we've had today, because I think in a lot of, a lot of ways we want, um, as humans, we want answers um, and we want to be able to put a bow on our lives or on this circumstance or whether it's suffering or whether it's a worldview that, that has its own justification. Like we want to be able to put a bow on it and say, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm justified. In, yep. in believing this or in feeling this way or not feeling this way. And, and even going back to what we were talking about in, in interacting with people of different faiths to be able to say, we're all human here. <laughs> we all have suffering in varying degrees. We all have love in varying degrees. And th these, these great common denominators in our existence helps us to in the human project to be able to, to be able to talk to each other and love each other. That's exactly the feeling I had. The feeling overwhelmed me. I share humanity with these yeah. Yeah. twenty, with these twenty prisoners, these seventeen lifers. Yeah, I, I share a common humanity with them. Yeah, and also them, and they were bright, intelligent, curious. And I thought, yes, okay, they have to be punished, but what a terrible waste mm. of human life to just mm. lock them up for. And I, I don't have any solution to that. It just the feeling just wound over me. Yeah. What a waste of human life. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I would love to talk to you longer. I, I emailed you earlier that I'd love to come up for a weekend, but I don't want to presume. But uh, it, this has been really refreshing, and I think in a lot of ways um, underlines the fact that theology, philosophy, these all come from our, our, our own senses, our own interaction with the world around us, what we see, what we smell, what we hear, what we touch, that is, is informing our, our 
metaphysical experience, you know, that, that we know God through the senses. And I think that, and we know our existence and what our role in the world is through those very same senses and not to take them for granted, but to, to, to use them to, to be able to understand this world better. So thank you so much. If anybody wanted to find out more, obviously you've, just go to Amazon and type in uh, Walter Stork and you'll see a ton of books. But and I, I don't I don't know. Are you are you on the the social media platforms? Are you on? No, no, no I avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, um, would you do us the honor of of just praying and thanking God for our time together, and then we will uh, we'll end our time. But thank you so much, dear God of incredible power mercy, creativity, intelligence. We thank you for the lives you have given us, for all that's been good in them. And we pray, show your mercy on those who suffer. Amen. 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 Thank you so much.